Welcome to A History of Cuba, Episode 3, Cuban Indigenous Groups in Columbus. On the first introductory episodes, I provided an introductory background into the podcast, as well as the geography and political divisions of Cuba, so as to provide some context, especially to listeners with limited information on Cuba. As I mentioned in the first two episodes, Cuban history before Christopher Columbus landing on 1492 in Cuba is very limited. Before 1492, indigenous groups, mainly Taino, Sibonay, and Guanajata Bay, among others, inhabited the island. The economy and political structure of these indigenous groups were much simpler than its larger counterparts in Central and South America, specifically the Mayans, Aztecs, and Incas. Population estimates of the indigenous population in Cuba at the end of the 15th century have varied over time, with current calculations estimated at 112,000 to 160,000 inhabitants. Most readings of Cuban history identify the Guanajata Bay as both the most primitive among the Cuban Aboriginal groups, as well as the earliest of the three groups to have inhabited the island. The Guanajata Bay Aboriginals were spread out, though a significant population was found in the occidental or western side of the island. When Diego Velazquez explored the Cuban mainland in 1515, he advised of the primitive and salvaged state of the Guanajata Bay. I want to stop here and stress that by primitive, I don't mean to say that the Guanajata Bay were racially inferior to the Sibonay or the Taino tribes, or that their cultural norms were barbaric. No, by primitive, I mean that they were the least technologically advanced in terms of the agriculture, the tools they use, their shelters, etc. Now, with respect to the Sibonay, they were also spread out, but mainly located in the provinces of what is now Camagüey and formerly the Las Villas province in the center of the island. In other words, in the middle and middle eastern side of the island. The archaeological remains in Cuba indicate that they were likely semi-nomadic and Sibonay settlements were relatively small, with large communities hardly ever surpassing the hundreds. The last group were the Tainos. The Tainos share various similarities with Sibonay culture. As without the other groups, the Taino were spread out, though mainly occupying the oriental side of the Cuban mainland, in addition to parts of the island of Hispaniola, which is currently Haiti and the Dominican Republic. The Taino community was organized with a tribe chief on top, called a cacique, a council, as well as spiritual guides called beiges. It has also been documented that the Tainos cultivated peppers, boniato, yuca, cotton, corn, and tobacco. One of the famous Taino cacique, or chief, was Hatue. Many Cuban listeners will identify Hatue from the famous Cuban beer and malt drinks named Hatue after the Cuban chief. Hatue has also been attributed in Cuba as the first rebel of America. Hatue and other Taino caciques, such as Guama, fought against the Spanish invaders. Despite their bravery and courage, they were no match for their Spanish adversaries. The Spanish had great advantages in relation to the indigenous counterparts, but it is safe to say that military advances and European infectious diseases made the, the, the destruction and subjugation of the indigenous peoples in Cuba and the Americas almost absolutely certain. 
by the end of the 16th century, the indigenous population will be extinguished, if not by direct warfare with the Spaniards, then by the exploitive and slavery systems of the encomienda and repartimiento systems. In the next episode, I will provide an overview of these colonial economic societal systems. But for the time being, just think of these systems as, as exploitive and slave-like. The general picture for indigenous groups in Cuba is then that they will be eliminated initially by warfare, European disease, and slave-like systems such as the encomienda and repartimiento. Eventually, the natives were the natives that were left over, about five to 6,000, according to historian Ted Hekins, would suffer from a process of mestizaje, or racial mixing, with their Spaniard counterparts. In other words, Spaniards, Spaniards and natives will, would intermingle, but since the natives that were left over were significantly small in relation to the Spaniards, this would spell the end of the indigenous race in the years to come. Having provided some context, I will now start speaking with respect to the landing of Christopher Columbus in Cuba and the events thereof. I'm sure everyone knows of the original purposes of the European exploration of the Americas at that time. But anyways, to quickly recap to those who forgot or didn't pay attention in history class. Originally, the main impetus driving Spanish exploration west of Europe was to find a sea route to the Far East, namely to India, China, and Indonesia among others, so as to establish trade routes, establish colony bases, and generally benefit the mother colony. Finding gold and riches was also in the backhead of the Spanish conquistadors at the time, and this was one of the main reasons for the future expeditions into Cuba. Briefly speaking, the story of Columbus landing on Cuba is as follows. On October 27 or October 28, in 1492, Columbus landed in Cuba days after arriving in San Salvador, Bahamas. As I mentioned, Christopher Columbus landed in Cuba either on October 27th or October 28, 1492. I I have seen various sources cite either of these two dates. Since the difference between these dates is a trivial matter in the grand scheme of things, I will not dwell on this matter further. And if any listeners can point out a definitive source, I will gladly appreciate it. In any case, Columbus led forth the three famous ships, La Pinta, La Niña, and the Santa Maria, to land on Cuba's northeastern coast in what is estimated to be now the province of Holguin. Upon landing in Cuba, Columbus firstly named Cuba Isla Juana in honor of Juan of Aragon in Spain. Upon landing in Cuba, Columbus is well known for saying, quote, he had never seen anything so beautiful, unquote and that it was the, quote, most lovely that eyes have ever seen, unquote. After Cuba, Columbus continued on his first voyage to the island of Hispaniola, currently the island occupying the countries of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. In Hispaniola, Columbus met with some ind- indigenous groups and established a fort there named La Navidad, meaning Christmas in English, and returned to Spain thereafter to tell of his travels. On his second voyage in late 1493, Columbus found the fort of La Navidad in ruins, a result of the seas and rebellion from the natives in the island. A second settlement named Isabella was established, also in Hispaniola. Columbus returned to Cuban waters, this time exploring the south coast, south, south coast of the oriental part of the island. Columbus' second exploration of Cuban waters led as far as the island of youth. 
The second exploration of Cuba had been going on for over, for over three months in search of gold and riches, but to no avail. At this point in the story, Columbus still believed that he reached Asia. And after returning to Hispaniola from his trip to Cuba, his opinion was that Cuba was a peninsula of an Asian mainland. It will take Sebastián de Ocampo in or about 1508, who was the first European to circ circumnavigate Cuba, to establish that Cuba was in fact an island and not a peninsula, peninsula as Columbus had originally sought. Throughout this period, which was 1492 to 1511, the Spanish continued establishing settlements in the island of Hispaniola, but no permanent settlements will be established in Cuba until 1511. In a few years, Spanish settlements continued to grow in the island of Hispaniola, with over 2,500 settlers by the early 1500s. After settlements in Hispaniola were more stable, attention drifted to the island of Cuba. Historian Ramiro Guerra Sanchez notes that all the Spanish Caribbean colonies generally shared an initial common destiny. Specifically, this consisted of initial, an initial period of increased growth, followed by a slump, and finally by a third period of impoverishment that would culminate in a fourth period of slow but sure economic revival. Ramiro Guerra Sanchez goes on to say that by 1511, Hispaniola was already in its third stage of general impoverishment. And this was one of the main reasons incentivizing Spanish conquistadors to push forward in exploring Cuba and elsewhere, elsewhere thereafter. I tend, to agree, I, I tend to agree with Ramiro Guerra Sanchez on this point, as the Spanish, Spanish were clearly unsatisfied by the lack of gold and riches in Hispaniola, and their dreams of glory did not largely materialize. Eventually, after Sebastián de Ocampo circumnavigated Cuba in 1508 and returned to Santo Domingo in, in Hispaniola, preparations were made thereafter for the permanent occupation of Cuba. This expedition will begin in 1511 under the leadership of Diego Velázquez de Cuellar. I would like to stop at this point, however, and I will continue with the story of Diego Velázquez and his expedition in the next episode. Before saying goodbye, however, let's quickly recap some of the events we've covered. In this episode, we provided an overview of the indigenous settlements in Cuba prior to 1492. The main indigenous groups were the Guanajata Bay, Siboney and Taino. The Guanajata Bay were known to be the most pr primitive among the three, and they mainly occupied the occidental part of the Cuban mainland. The Siboney occupied mainly the center or eastern center of the island, whereas the Taino occupied the oriental side of the island, as well as the island of Hispaniola. Their estimated population by the beginning of the 16th century, that is the 1500s, being somewhere in the 112,000 to 160,000. By the 1530s and 1540s, the Aboriginal population has significantly re reduced to no more than five to 6,000. There were a series of factor factors for this population reduction, but the main ca causes are European diseases, warfare with the Spaniards, and subjugation under the encomienda and repartimiento systems. Whatever natives were left over would intermingle with the larger Spanish population, thus resulting in the overall extinction of the Aboriginal race in Cuba. With respect to Columbus, his landing in Cuba was either on October 27th or October 28th in the year 1492. Columbus is said to have landed in the northeastern coast of Cuba, 
firstly naming the island Isla Juana. Columbus then continued in his exploration and established settlements in the island of Española. Columbus made various voyages throughout the late 15th century, including future explorations of Cuba. Slowly but surely, settlements in the island of Española began to grow, with over 2,500 settlers by the early 1500s. In 1508, Sebastián de Ocampo finally circumnavigated the Cuban mainland, discovering that it was in fact an island and not a peninsula as Columbus had originally thought. Whether due to the stability of settlements in Hispaniola or the growing, growing impoverishment by 1511 in the island or the impetus to find gold and riches elsewhere or a combination of all of these, an expedition set off from Hispaniola to establish permanent settlements in Cuba. This expedition was led by Diego Velázquez de Cuellar, and we will continue with, his, with this story in the next episode.